Hi, I'm Julian Sinclair. And I'm Jack Sinclair. Tonight's scripture is in the book of John, chapter 4, verses 4 through 26. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he went from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to, the, to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with it, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water, water I give him will become in him, and a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. <clears throat> Jesus replied to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a, a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. You just declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will not worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I will speak to you and he. Now for the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and power, and the glory, forever and ever and ever. Amen. Hello again, everybody. Will you join me in John chapter 4? Shout out to the Sinclairs for putting together that video. They read a long conversation. That's a very famous conversation. It's famous not just because of the life-giving words that Jesus says. It's famous because of who Jesus says it to. The famous woman at the well. In the second half of our message, we're going to return to that story, but I hope that you're there already in John chapter 4 because I want you to look back through what we just heard and find a word or a phrase or something that was challenging, interesting, compelling, and I want you to put that in the chat box. I want you to re-examine what we just heard and what we're going to look at in the second half 
of our message. But the first half of our message, we're going to unpack our second core practice, which is to love neighbor. You see, at the Neighborhood Church, we believe that the Christian life was never just meant to be believed. It was meant to be lived. So our five core practices are our humble intention to live our life with God together. So our second core practice is love neighbor. As I said a moment ago, the first part, we're going to look at what do we mean? And then the second half, we'll return to John chapter 4 to see what it looks like, the example of Jesus. So part one, what do we mean love neighbor? Well, we say that we commit to love others as ourselves, regardless of race, background, ethnicity, orientation, or status. Where would we get a crazy idea like that? Well, it's actually a very ancient idea. It first popped up in Leviticus 19.18, in the Jewish law, love your neighbor as yourself. It was revolutionary then, and it's revolutionary today. When Jesus arrives on the scene, he was asked by someone, hey, what's the greatest commandment of all of those Jewish laws? And he said, and actually someone else said, depending on which gospel you read, the greatest is from Deuteronomy 6, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus gets it mashed up with Leviticus 19.18, and he says what? You know it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The mashup of these two commandments, Jesus says, there is no commandment greater than these. It all falls into place if you get those two right. To love God with everything and to love neighbor as ourselves. That's why at the Neighborhood Church, duh, it starts with following Jesus giving your life and finding that God gives you his life, gives you the Holy Spirit. When you follow and love God with everything, naturally that life and love spills out into loving your neighbor the way that God would. When we love the way that God would, that's a sure sign that we're loving God with everything. And when we love God with everything, we're loving like God would. It's as if God poured his own life-giving love or living water within us that bubbles up, springs up, and spills out into love of neighbor. That's why whatever church you're a part of, it's got to be a great commandment church. It's all about loving God with everything that leads to loving our neighbor as ourselves. So, Back to our second core practice and what we mean by it. Let me give you two quick stories in real life, in real time, that happened this week. You see, one of the things that Amy and I have been doing with our daughters is to try to help teach them how to apologize, especially to apologize to one another. You see, I think, unfortunately, <laughs> the girls have picked up a bad habit from their dad. <laughs> and their apologies sound something like this. I'm sorry. It's just that. You catch that? Maybe the variation is, I'm sorry. But, 
Ooh, you get that? Is it just me that can apologize like that once in a while? I'm sorry, but the reason I did that was because of what you did. Or we see with our daughters, I'm sorry, it's just that she. Or I'm sorry, but if you really knew, and what Amy and I have been working on is to say, wait, stop. Let's start with you. What are you owning? Let's leave the qualifications off the table. We've been working out this, I'm sorry, trying to eliminate the but, trying to eliminate the just, eliminate the qualifications. Second story, talking to a friend this week, and he was sharing with me about how he's become a part of a new community of guys, and he's been getting to know these folks. They're on a text chain together. They're living a little bit of life together. And he says, you know, it's been really good for me, been really life-giving for me to have this new community of guys in my life. He says, but I didn't really ever know them before. And I feel like every time I learn something else about them that's different from how I view the world or how I would vote or how I would live or we have a different kind of story and background, it's really difficult And I almost want to say, actually, don't tell me what you really think about this or that. Because he said, I've found it harder and harder to not see them differently. And he's telling me this, and I'm thinking through what he's saying, and I go, dude, you're exactly right. Isn't that how I am tempted to live? Isn't that how our nation has behaved the last several years. It's like the more we differentiate ourselves where you vote this way and think that way and I don't, isn't it natural to try to slot them and just dismiss them? Isn't it human nature to not love those who are like us? Isn't it easier to like the people like us, to love the people that are easier to love. So our conversation shifted to where he and I began to talk about, isn't that the work of God's people? The more we know should cause us to surrender more and more to the kind of self-giving love that loves without qualifications. Just like Jesus loved a woman that had all these qualifications, Jesus shouldn't have loved her because, well, it's just she had all these different relationships and she was not even married to someone. Even though we don't know her whole story, we know enough to know in those days that these women were vulnerable And to live with a man was a survival mechanism. And maybe she had been burned so bad in the past that she didn't even want to walk down the aisle again because she had been so hurt. Jesus knew her and yet still loved her. He didn't dismiss, diminish. He loved her without qualifications. So here's what I mean. Here's what we mean with our core practice. 
When we say we commit to love others as ourselves, regardless of race, background, ethnicity, orientation, or status, it means that we love others without qualification. You know, like Jesus loved that woman, and that man, and you, and me, and us, without qualification. And he calls us to love that way too. That love is only possible and generated by the life-giving love that we see in God. Let me give you two quick passages of scripture to write down, as well as two TNC mantras you might want to write down as well before we move on to our story in part two. The first passage I want you to uh, highlight, to look at, is 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. This is powerful. This is earth-shattering. You could spend all week with this passage and never plumb its depths. It's radical. It's wild. And let me tell you, it contains the phrase, God is love. Of all the things that John, who wrote that letter, could have said about God, he doesn't say God is holy, although God is. He doesn't say God is powerful, although God is. He doesn't say that God is merciful, although God is. He says God is love. There's a French philosopher named Simone Weil, and she said that God is love like an emerald is green. It is just the nature and character. It's the is-ness of God. And so John says the God who is love has shown us we only know how to love because we learned it from the source. And he said whoever lives in love lives in God. Just pause and hear that again. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. It's as if what Jesus has come to show the world is the fullest revelation to pour this love into humanity so that we might live in love and live in God so that streams of living life-giving water might bubble up and transform us and our world. The question for me and for you is what would my life look like today if I were to live in love? What needs to change in my life as it's currently stated and lived in order that I may more fully live in love because I am more fully connected to the God who is love? That's the first passage of scripture. The first TNC mantra I want to share with you is the love of God is working in you when the love of neighbor is flowing out of you. The second passage of scripture I want to share with you to build this case of what we mean when we say we're loving our neighbor without qualification answers the question in a certain way. Well, okay, but who's my neighbor? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 47, Jesus says, You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He goes on to say what I had mentioned earlier. Instead of liking the people that are like you and greeting and loving and spending time with the people like you, he goes, no, no, go out of your way because everybody does that. If you're truly living in the love of God, you're going to even love our enemies 
and our others and our difference without qualification, regardless of their background, status, orientation, story, fill in the blank. Here's our second mantra I want to share with you. Jesus has rezoned our neighborhood. Now everyone we encounter is a neighbor to be loved, not an enemy to be hated or an other to be ignored. You see, I want you to imagine all the lines that we've penciled in around who's lovable and who isn't. Then I want you to imagine Jesus walking up and pulling that line up off the ground and moving that boundary to the furthest reaches to where all of a sudden everyone is now found within our rezoned neighborhood. Jesus says, everyone you encounter is a neighbor to be loved. No longer are they enemies to be hated or others to be ignored. So here's the real talk question. Would you ask yourself, as I asked myself this week in my conversation with my friend, if it's not hating someone, who am I ignoring? Who am I dismissing? What group of people that think differently, live differently, vote differently, come from a different faith tradition and background, have I slotted as an other or an enemy? Could it be that the question we must also ask is this, what are the conclusions I've drawn about others that are preventing me from my call to love them? What are the qualifications or conclusions that I've drawn around myself and others that are preventing me from my call to love everyone as myself? That, the answer to that question, to love without qualification, is what we mean. Part two, what does it look like? Well, Jesus gives us an example, and what's powerful about Jesus, and the more you're going to come to learn as you read the Gospels and dive in to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus, is that everything that Jesus asked, he lived. So that we might not only hear these words, but live them because we've seen with our own eyes and have felt in our own heart that what he calls us to is actually livable. I can't tell you how many times, literally in the last three weeks, in our neighborhood group conversations, my conversations on the phone or Zoom with others, have I heard it's only Jesus in me that has helped me in this way or that way or the other. They talk about some conversations, some interactions, some moment in their history and in their life, and they say, it's only because of Jesus that I was able to live that. Why? Because the more we're connected to Jesus, his life, his words, his example, the more it gets embodied and lived out in our lives. So let's look at Jesus' example in John chapter 4. When Jesus spoke to this Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus crossed religious ethnic, and social barriers so that God's life will extend to the excluded. You see, Jesus went where no Jew contemporary of himself would have gone. It's the region of Samaria. 
And in order to really understand how revolutionary, how boundary crossing this conversation is, we need a little bit of history. So bear with me. I want to give you a really fascinating story about why such animosity between the Jews, Jesus and his contemporaries, and the Samaritans. And why in the New Testament we keep seeing Jesus pushing his Jewish brothers and sisters out to the very ends of his neighborhood so that they might love these Samaritans. Here's some history. Jesus crossed a religious and ethnic boundary that had been in place for centuries. In 722 BC, Israel, the northern tribes, got wiped out by Assyria. However, there was a few Israelites that were allowed to stay in their homeland. However, they soon realized that they weren't alone. Some new neighbors moved in, and these neighbors carried their own customs and their own gods into this new neighborhood of those Israelites left. And I should tell you that these Israelites held on to the first five books of our Old Testament, what we call, they would call the Torah, the law, the instruction. They held on to Moses' law, and they tried to keep that identity, that practice, and their God. But that got really tough when you start to rub elbows with these new neighbors, with their new gods and their new customs. And you know what happened after a while? They didn't just mix some of their ideas about God and gods. They didn't just mix their customs and get a little bit more lax with those first five books of the Old Testament. They also began to mix their families. So then, that happens generation after generation after generation. You begin to have not just a religious difference, you have an ethnic difference from their Jewish brothers in the southern tribes. However, you know, if you've studied the Bible in the Old Testament, that the same fate awaited the southern tribes of Judah. They just got to hold on to their own customs in the temple in Jerusalem uh, a little bit longer. So about 136, 130 years after Israel gets wiped out, the southern tribes get wiped out by Babylon. And they actually get uprooted and moved away as in what's known as the exile. So stay with me. I want you to imagine what it would be like if someone from another nation came to your door, knocked down your house, knocked down your church, said, get up, you're coming with me. And that's if you even survived. So then we get those stories later on in the Old Testament, like in Daniel and elsewhere, where they're clawing and holding on tooth and nail to their identity, their religion, their practice, their sacred text. And eventually, they're allowed to come back to their demolished homeland, and they start to rebuild the temple and rebuild their nation. And I'll tell you that when they came home, they had a reinvigoration of God's way and who God is. They did a better job than their northern neighbors of maintaining their identity as God's people. But they tried to build that temple back, and guess what? Their neighbors from the north, now known as Samaritans in the region of Samaria, they came and said, Hey, neighbor, I see that you're building that temple. Can we help? And you know what these 
Jewish folks to the south said, nah, we're good. We're revitalizing our identity and our culture and our practice, and we don't need to mix with the likes of you. We saw how it's been going in those northern areas, so we good. You go on and do you. And these Samaritans were so offended and so upset, and they realized if that's how it's going to be, that's how it's going to be. And you know what they did? They went and built their own temple. Okay, now you know why I say all this craziness? When Jesus, who is a Jew, is talking with this woman, who is a Samaritan, they're talking at a holy site that was shared by their common ancestors. They share a common holy book. But generations and generations and centuries and centuries of division and distinction had led to this conversation. And this woman, who would have never expected a Jewish man to open his mouth and talk to her, is all of a sudden talking to her. And then she starts to say a religious question like, okay, we're doing this, I guess. We're talking about all this crazy stuff. Okay, you don't just want some water. You're talking about living water. Uh, where's the real temple? if you're really a spiritual teacher. And then that's when Jesus says, see, it's true that you Samaritans did miss the boat a little bit, but I'm telling you that today, here and now, the where doesn't matter. You see, that temple down there with my people in Jerusalem and your temple over there on that mountain doesn't matter so much. You see, because God is spirit, and now is the moment when what I have I'm giving, and it's life, and those who take hold of this life will worship God who is spirit, in spirit and in truth. And she says, okay, that's deep, that's crazy. So she does what we might do when it gets real, and kind of deflects. So she says, well, uh, I guess when the Messiah comes, he'll sort all that mess out for us. And then Jesus tells a heretic, half-breed, Samaritan, fill in the blank. He tells her, I, the one talking to you, am the Messiah. Jesus crossed a religious and ethnic boundary. And Jesus tells this woman something he didn't tell the religious leader Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Something that he was even hush-hush about many times with his own disciples. And that's where we realize he also crossed a social boundary. Jesus talked about these things that mattered, these spirit and life things with a woman. He talked to a woman as if he would talk to a man. Like all of a sudden, this kind of stuff isn't beneath her. Who would have thunk it? Because no self-respecting man would talk to a woman like that. No self-respecting rabbi would have been caught dead alone with a woman, much less a woman like that. Which explains later in John chapter 4 why the disciples show up after their grocery trip and say, Dude, are you serious? Does he know where we are? Does he know who he's talking to? And Jesus pushes and crosses those boundaries. Jesus 
walks into Samaria where his disciples never would have walked. Jesus talks to a woman who his disciples would not have talked because Jesus loves without qualifications. Because Jesus is showing us, his disciples, that to love our neighbor means we must not ignore them. Jesus was showing his disciples that we're not going to walk around Samaria. We're not going to avoid women like this or women at all. We are going to engage and offer life itself so that God's life might include the excluded. It's livable, but it takes staying connected to the source and practicing the love we see Jesus loves. As we wind down this second half, let me talk to you about my grandma's piano. A few years ago, we were able to inherit my grandmother's piano, which was extraordinarily special to me. It was staying at my aunt's house, and my aunt was so gracious to let it come live at our house because we were very close to our grandma. She passed when uh, my cousins and I were very young, but we stayed at her house almost every day while our parents were at work, and she left a remarkable impact on our life. So to have that physical representation literally within arm's reach right here where you see me on this video is my grandmother's piano. And the same bench is here that my mom and aunt learned to play this piano. They sat right here on this bench. Around the time that they were Emma and Nora's age, so we always thought, when's a time where we kind of let them go for it and learn themselves? Well, that time was this week. Amy signed them up for an online piano course that was inexpensive, and we said, let's get our feet wet, let's see if it works, and wouldn't you know it, our girls are practicing every single day. And so it's been so funny to watch them with their iPads up on this piano, going through their lessons, and the very first lesson was how they are supposed to sit, how they're supposed to have their hands. And before they ever learn anything about music, they had to learn how to sit. And so what happens is when they would do their first lesson and we would say, yay, you did it. They would come back the next day and they run up to the piano and Amy would have to say, oh, how are you sitting? Oh put your back up straight. And then they'd put their hands down and then Amy would say, oh, you got to pick up your hands. And then she would say, find your C. And then they would take the C journey and she'd go, find your D, E, F. And we just watched them. But what was so funny was to see those first several days as they're learning, we also hear Amy saying, sit up, hands up, wear C, until... They just knew it. And I know that we're early on, but we saw that the next day and the next day, it just started to become a little more natural. 
So the first tune they learned, of course, was Hot Cross Buns. Shout out to those of you who learned Hot Cross Buns on the piano, the recorder, when you were in elementary school. But let me tell you, we've been living and breathing Hot Cross Buns in our house. We go to sleep, and in our head, as we fall asleep, is da, da, da. Then we wake up, and we hear da, da, da. We go make coffee. Da, 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 da. Every day. Da, da, da. <laughs> so they're doing these lessons. They're practicing this song. And toward the end of this week, uh, one of the bonus challenges was for them to sit down and play hot cross buns with their eyes closed. And so they sit down, their back up straight, their hands in position, and they close their eyes tight. And what do we hear? You just sang it, didn't you? Beep, beep, beep. And they play the tune with their eyes closed. And you would have thought they just played at Radio City Music Hall to a packed house. We erupt. We're celebrating. They jump up. They're cheering. We go sit at dinner. And we look over. And Nora's sitting there with her eyes closed, tapping on the table some hot cross buns. And all of a sudden, they're just doing it. Because they've practiced. They've given themselves to this. When we are with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus, the kinds of call to love our neighbors, to love our enemies, to bless those who persecute you, the more you give yourselves to this life, the more his words become flesh in your life. The living water that Jesus gives is a little bit of a wordplay, double entendre, because in Jesus' day, the living water was another way of saying the running water, the clean water, the fresh flowing water. And Jesus means that the water that he has to give us is so different from the stagnant, disease-ridden, death-dealing pools that have choked out so much life. He is not offering a religious, dead water. He's offering the kinds of water that gets into us so that we might get into the world and love without qualification. Do we want to get his words into our lives? Do we want to get his words into our kids' lives? Let me just start to wind down with some practical applications because it won't happen without intention to connect to the source, and to follow his example. We've got to practice. And it starts by being attentive. Because you cannot love our Samaritan neighbors if you ignore them. So when you're attentive to others, you might begin to understand others. Jesus began to unpack and see through her hurt and to see her story. What would it look like for you to be in a place that says, I see you. I'm listening. God sees you. Who's the Spirit inviting you to be attentive to? Because we can't ignore Samaria any longer. When you begin to understand others, you can begin to identify with others. Okay, maybe those disciples started to realize that that woman at the well reminds them of their cousin or their brother's wife. Maybe I see 
a common shared humanity. Maybe I begin to identify that I've known what it means to be vulnerable and gossiped about, which is why she was there in the middle of the day to avoid the gaggles of women and men at the well in the morning. When you begin to understand others, you begin to identify with others. And when you identify with others as neighbors, only then can you love others as yourself. Be attentive. Expose yourself and your children to those who are not like you so that you might understand them. So that when you understand them, you can identify. And when you identify, you can truly love. Which is why we've been doing what we're doing every third Saturday in getting out and rubbing elbows with people in our community, our actual neighbors. What we were doing at the neighborhood table and Lord willing will start up in some form soon because we've got to follow Jesus to be attentive, to understand and to identify, to begin to see our enemies as brothers to begin to see those different people, not with the just and the but and the qualifications, but to see them as sister. So, when we, as God's people, do that, when we really love like this and that life-giving water bubbles up to transform us, that's when it transforms our communities. That's when it moves from, oh, our world is so divided, it starts in you and me and our own heart, choosing to stay connected to God so that we might love like him. Yesterday, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would have turned 92. And at age 39, on the night before he was assassinated, he preached his famous mountaintop sermon at Bishop Charles Mason Temple in Memphis. And this sermon is remarkable, and you can find it in uh, the King's Institute online through Stanford and elsewhere. It's been written on and looked at and picked apart because it's almost as if Dr. King was eulogizing himself. It's really poignant and wild to see. But in that sermon, he spoke of this concept that he called a dangerous unselfishness. It's dangerous because it's costly. It costs Dr. King his life. Just like this kind of dangerous unselfishness could have cost Jesus his reputation. But Dr. King said, let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. That's the question before you tonight. The question is not, if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is, if I do not stop to help, what will happen to them? He concluded that message by saying, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. 
Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. May we see in Jesus not just an invitation, but an example to love others without qualification. And may our prayer be that he would bring us, call us, draw us deeper into his love so that we might move further out to love all neighbors. Amen. Good evening, church. Tonight's benediction was written by Aubrey Smith. May God enable us to see his precious image etched within every human we meet. May we receive with open hands the inexpressible love of God for our own selves and extend those same hands to those who long for such love. May the Spirit of God cleanse our hearts from hidden superiority, bigotry, and fear. And may our hearts be quick to repent in humility. May we be a community with the mind of Christ, relinquishing our power to give dignity to the weak, honoring those the world despises, and sacrificially loving others more than we love our own status or reputation. May our hearts reflect God's own heart for the foreigner, for people of color, for the poor, for the outsiders. May God establish us as his kingdom of priests who bless those the world has cursed and embracing them as we ourselves have been embraced in Christ. Go in peace.